This is Speaking Out America. I'm JR. Please go to the website, support what we do, the information we provide. And I want to read to you about something that I find fascinating. The Ministry for State Security, commonly known as the Stasi, was the state security service of East Germany from 1950 to 1990. I am reading now from Wikipedia. The Stasi's function was similar to that of the KGB, serving as a means of maintaining state authority, i.e. the shield and sword of the party, shield in Schwert der Party. This was accomplished primarily through the use of a network of civilian informants. This organization contributed to the arrest of approximately 250,000 people in East Germany. The Stasi also conducted espionage and other clandestine operations abroad through its subordinate foreign intelligence service, the Office of the Reconnaissance, or Head Office. They also maintained contacts and occasionally cooperated with West German terrorists. The Stasis were headquartered in East Berlin. This is when East Berlin was still communist. With an extensive complex in Berlin-Lechtenburg and several smaller facilities throughout the city, Erich Milke was the Stasi's longest-serving chief, in power for 32 of the 40 years of the existence of that group. The HVA, under Marcus Wolf, gained a reputation as one of the most effective intelligence agencies of the Cold War. After German reunification, numerous officials were prosecuted for their crimes, and the surveillance files that the Stasi had maintained on millions of East Germans were unclassified so that all citizens could inspect their personal files on request. The files were maintained by the Stasi Record, uh, Records Agency until June 2021, or no, June uh, 2021, when they became part of the German Federal Archives. Now, I look at what's happening in the FBI, and we can clearly see that it has been uh, to say that it's been politicized is, is such an understatement. When you factor in that they have had a definitive impact on the last two elections, for sure, that we're coming to, to discover, but probably every other election. I mean, if, if we're catching them now, the chances are they were probably doing it. But I want you to hear something from the newly elected congresswoman from Wyoming, uh, Hageman. And I want her to explain to you what has happened in the United States since 9-11 and, and how we got to be where we are today, because it's very important. And just like the Stasis were set up to sort of work for the government apparatus and making sure that there was, quote, law and order. I, I see so many uh, comparisons to our own FBI and what's happened to this law enforcement agency. And I think it was Ron Paul, maybe another, who said that the FBI uh, is now no longer law enforcement. It is actually in, in intelligence gathering. And they have been weaponized, I believe, by the current administration and probably the deep state. Remember, the deep state is the, the ac accumulation 
of all of those lifers who work for the government and will do whatever they can to make sure that their department and the department next to them are never eliminated, even if they outlive uh, their, their effectiveness. And this is why government rarely ever gets smaller. This, I forget, I think it's like we have 40,000 laws on the books. They say now that every uh, citizen is probably violating at least one law every single day, and they don't even know it. That's how many laws. There are laws that govern the silliest of things, but they're there and they never get off the books. And there are all, always agencies that are there to enforce whatever laws are on the books. So here's, uh, I think her name is Mar- Marion Hageman. Anyway, here, here she is responding before Congress. What has happened to the FBI? As this hearing gets underway, I want to focus on the cultural changes that have occurred within the FBI over the last 20 plus years. Fundamental changes that have led to the political capture of our flagship law enforcement agencies. And with the Democrats using these agencies as their own personal political hacks. What happened that allowed for politicization to permeate every facet of the FBI? Well, there are many things. But I think we must focus on the information that was provided by retired FBI Special Agent Thomas Baker, who testified before the Select Subcommittee earlier this year. Mr. Baker explained that in the aftermath of 9-11, and upon being embarrassed by being scolded by President Bush for not being able to stop it from happening, then FBI Director Robert Mueller made the decision to fundamentally change the FBI from a law enforcement body to an intelligence-driven one. Such a redirection of the very purpose of the FBI resulted in centralizing its power in Washington, D.C., while placing less emphasis on the field offices. Changes that replaced agent executives in the headquarters with so-called professionals from the outside and stockpiling more and more power in D.C. and away from the country that it serves. 9-11 was a watershed moment for many reasons. It was a horrific terrorist attack on the shores of the United States of America. But our government's ultimate response is also tragic. And by targeting, by eventually finding a way to target not the terrorists, but American citizens, which is where the FBI and DOJ are at this point in time. And that's why we're in the situation that we're in. I remember writing an article about this very thing. It must have been, I don't know, probably a year or two ago about how transgender laws and LGBTQ laws are, are ways of empowering the, the United States government into taking legal action against people. It, it's a great widget, and it's all under the, under the guise of protecting people from discrimination. But there, in reality today, and I think most would agree, that there's far, far less, if any, discrimination except in unusual or rare circumstances of discrimination against members of the homosexual community. We uh, Americans, we all learn to get along. Uh, and our, our history has shown that we can adapt uh, to, to just about any kind of new social context, including, you know, that what people do behind bedroom doors is their own business. And really, it's, it, as long as it, you don't affect me, why should I care? And that's, I think, the uh, how we how people perceive homosexuality, and and I think clearly what we don't like about it is that it's in your face, 
And for some strange reason, they are obsessed, and I mean people who advocate for LGBTQ uh, advocacy uh, or justice or whatever it is that they're fighting for. The fight for discrimination was won. We have laws on the books now that prohibit discrimination against people based on their gender or their sex. Problem solved. Let's move on. But now it's not just for that. It's also for a, a, a continuous reaffirmation to members of this group that seem to be growing horizontally. We may have all the letters of the alphabet by the time they're done, which means basically everybody. And the, the rights that are afforded the members of the LGBTQ community some, sometimes can be turned and, and you can be twisted and you can be forced to affirm. You have to affirm. Every business now has to raise their right hand and swear that they are absolutely about defending LGBTQ rights. And it gets tiresome. We grow weary of listening to them complain. And now they want to have drag shows. Adults, perfectly fine if they want to go watch men who like to dress up as women and laugh at them. You know, someday people are going to look at you and say, boy, that was kind of, you know, it's the same way when I was a kid, they had midget wrestling. Uh, how many of you remember midget wrestling? I think they used to televise it. At least they did in, in L.A. where I grew up. And we went. I think there were two or three occasions where we went to Long Beach and watched midget wrestling. But you couldn't do that today because people would say, no, that's not right. You're making fun of a particular group or you're showcasing a particular group. Uh, I personally didn't feel that I was doing anything wrong, but I can just tell you that they won't have midget wrestling coming back anytime soon. So at some point, it's probably after we get over the, the shining bright object, people are going to look at how men who want to dress as women are actually suffering from some kind of mental disorder or emotional disorder. And that if they want to have fun, that's one thing. But if it's something that they constantly have to do, well, that gets a little weird. And I think most average people would say, you know what? You're kind of weird for that. And you want me to come and watch you and, and, and do what? And now they want to do it in front of children. This is what I don't understand about parents. Why on earth would you take your child to a drag queen anything? What is it that you want your child to, to learn? Tolerance? Inclusiveness? Or some, some man's perverted sexual dysfunction? I mean, introducing young kids who have no way of processing this, otherwise you're just normalizing the behavior. And you're telling your child that they can do this too. And I think that might be child abuse, to teach your child that they could be sexually explicit in public. I don't know why. It, rub, it rubs wrong with me. But that's where we're at today. And now we have the government that's backing it up. We have the United States government that is using its tools of intimidation to shut people down who don't comply with affirm affirming the LGBTQ community, including affirming young children who choose to be another sex because they identify as such. And that's where things get weird. So the FBI is now being weaponized. Remember now. They're going after people who protested schools that were introducing sexual curriculum to their children without their, not without their notification. And now these very parents are being targeted by the FBI. Can you see now how LGBTQ has been weaponized by our federal government? It seems as clear as day. Uh, you're listening to Speaking Out. I am JR. Don't forget our website, speakingoutamerica.com. And we'll be back.
back to Speaking Out America. Thank you so much for stopping by. And uh, I want to get on other, what I think, interesting news under the banner of, you know, yeah, this could affect you too. I've been reading a lot about the sun flares and CMEs, uh, a lot of activity going on right now with the sun. And as you know, uh, the sun could wipe us out in mere milliseconds. In fact, I read somewhere that if a solar flare uh, that was the size uh, of Earth was hurling in our way, which is not the case, but if that were to be the case, we would have 30 minutes. And that would be it. And I'm, I'm, what, what makes me curious is that the solar flare that exploded on Tuesday uh, caused by a sunspot three times the size of Earth. And yet there's scant news coverage of this. It's just amazing. The flare sent radiation that actually took out a lot of Earth radio signals on Tuesday and Wednesday. And there have been a series of recent space weather events as the sun enters a period of peak activity. And I get this from the Insider. Powerful solar flare that erupted from a sunspot three times the size of Earth, causing widespread radio blackouts. Uh, angry sun. Boy, it's the picture just... But no one talking about it. No one no one mentioning it. I don't. It's not even a, a, a kicker story at the end. Uh, there is a Class M.9.6 no, Class M solar flare, powerful enough to disrupt high-frequency radio signals in North America, Central America, and South America, per uh, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. Uh, no clear reports effects of the blackout, which lasted more than 10 minutes. But now this the side of the sun where this huge solar flare occurred is facing away from us. But from Sunday until Tuesday, it will be facing us. An M9 solar flare is a pretty powerful explosion, though they say it poses no health risk to humans, which, you know, if you say so, but I think I'll stay inside anyway. Solar flares rank from A, followed by B, C, M, and X classes. And M9 solar flare is just a rank below the most powerful class of solar flares. The flare was caused by a large sunspot that was just out of view when the, fire, when the flare exploded. The eruption was only one percentage point from being an X flare and would probably have been classified as it, uh, such if it had been in full view of Earth's observ observation satellites. The sun's sunspot, which has now come into view appears to be about three times the size of the Earth, per spaceweather.com. Experts will likely keep a close eye on the spot as it comes to face Earth this weekend. Sunspots are areas where magnetic fields are particularly strong, and they're un known to be associated with space weather events. The sun is gearing up for a, a peak ac of activity in the near 10 years, and by the way, there, there's a 11 and a half year cycle when there's peak activity and then minimal activity. And we've just come through a period of minimal activity, minimal sunspots. Now we're getting, let's just say hurricane season has arrived for the sun, in a sense. An X-class solar flare was spotted in March, causing radio blackouts in parts of Southeast Asia, Australia, and New Zealand. Scientists have warned that these peak of solar activities could potentially be dangerous if powerful storms were to short power grids 
around the globe. And I also would suggest that there was a report out from some magazine yesterday warning scientists, climate scientists are warming or warning that the earth is going to get real hot uh, in the coming five years. But how much of a role does this activity on the sun play? I mean, we're constantly being bombarded by all kinds of cosmic rays. And over time, these cosmic rays build up on the surface of the earth in the form of kinetic energy. And that could part and parcel raise the temperature just just as much as, say, oh, I don't know, a volcano or any other uh, terrestrial event that spews a lot of volcanic ash into the, uh, the atmosphere. So there's all kinds of things that can do us in. And uh, this is why you've got to be kind of, uh, you know, live every day up to the moment, really. Because something like this, which is completely beyond our control, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, there was something else I wanted to talk about in this segment. And I think it had to do with, was it, was it more? We're going to talk about George Soros coming up. I've got some audio from a 1979 interview that he did with Steve Croft over at 60 Minutes. Sometimes you see it floating around. And this is in response to Elon Musk getting criticism uh, a couple days ago for, for saying that he doesn't like George Soros and George Soros is out to destroy the planet. And he, he took heat for that, as, as people always do, because the media, the left wing, they're always very protective of Soros. And partly is because he funds so many liberal progressive organizations. Black Lives Matter being one of them, probably supports in some fashion Antifa. Uh, certainly anything to do with prison reform, which eventuates in people getting out of jail or no bail. A lot of the DAs around the country that are soft on crime are people that were funded in part by George Soros and his open door. So we'll get to all that in a little bit. Uh, but I also wanted to just remind people that we are in a we're in a position now where our government is being, what's the word? Our government is being exposed. These are dangerous times. And this is commentary from a FBI agent, Garrett Boyle, who spoke earlier today, uh, giving testimony uh, to Congress, to a, a congressional hearing about the FBI being weaponized to go after conservatives. And when you bring up anything as an agent, if you don't follow the narrative, well, you can be uh, terminated. Uh, without cause, and and basically your life is destroyed. Here's the quick testimony of one FBI whistleblower. And Mr. O'Boyle, we we just heard from you, you your your interaction with Mr. Gates and how all of this occurred and all of the hardships you've gone through. If one of your really good friends, your former colleagues, came to you and said, "I have this thing that is being covered up, and I think the American people know to know, need to know about it," what advice would you give them? I would tell them first to pray about it long and hard. And I would tell them I could take it to Congress for them or I could put them in touch with Congress, but I would advise them not to do it. So you would legitimately try to protect one of your colleagues from doing what you have done? Absolutely. And how do you think that solves being able to shine light on corruption, weaponization, any kind of misconduct that exists with the American people? It doesn't solve it. But the FBI will crush you. This government will crush you and your family if you try to expose the truth about things that they are doing that are wrong. Well, you don't we wanna... are all examples of that. 
I tell you what, that sends a that sends a chill up my spine. Does it send a chill up your spine, knowing that your country's law enforcement officers are are not only being weaponized towards you, but anybody on the inside who's dissenters? It's just like I was telling you. That's what the Stasi's did in East Germany. The Stasi's were no different. They were they were part of the Department of Justice. They were pull, fully sanctioned by the uh, powers that be, the political parties that were in charge. And they went around and they outed people and destroyed their lives for going against whatever the narrative the government wanted you to follow. And in this case, it was being a nice little citizen and taking what your communist government gives you. Now, I don't, I don't want to see that happen in our country. Welcome back to Speaking Out America. JR, don't forget our website, speakingoutamerica.com, and also a podcast by the same name. And uh, check us out Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Pacific on crntalk.com. And, uh, and there's a way to get the app, which is really easy. Uh, all you have to say is, hey, Siri, pound 250, and then keyword CRN, and you'll be immediately transported to uh, a place where you can download the app. And then you can listen to not just this program, but all the great programs. And I think that last count, there at least are 30 different uh, wonderful talk programs of all shapes and sizes that you can listen to at your fingertips, wherever you go. And if you love the spoken word and you, and you like being informed, then uh, it's just, you know, there's no better app. And it's all aggregated into one. Easy to just use your thumb. And uh, don't join us every day from 5 to 6 p.m. here on CRNTalk.com. I want to take you into the world of the FBI and listen to Marcus Allen tell his story about how he was harassed by the very agency simply for questioning a narrative. And and I want to remind you again that the Stasi were an elite force in East Berlin after World War II. They were the equivalent of that nation's FBI. And they were, as we are seeing signs of in our own country, weaponized by the ruling powers to weed out people who were not agreeing with the narrative, whatever the narrative was. And probably then it was supporting communism. They didn't want any free thinkers in that group. They didn't want people... You know, if you watch that interview yesterday with... It was uh, Elon Musk, Dave Faber over at CNBC... Uh, much of what he was saying echoes, finds echo in that communistic belief that you're not free really to speak your mind because it might cause problems for the establishment. It might cause problems for the people who put you into power. And so, you know, Faber, like probably a lot of Americans, he's, he's a very compliant member of that core. And that core says you're not supposed to doubt the narrative. That's what it's all always been about. And if you notice, every time, I hear it all the time, uh, people will say, they'll ask somebody, well, you don't think the election was a fake, do you? you? You believe Biden got elected, right? And and you're and that's like a, a qualifier. It's a litmus test to make sure you're on the inside and not on the outside. Because if you're on the outside, well, then you might be a terrorist, right? That's what they're basically saying with all this nonsense about uh, you know, what your what your position is on whether Biden was duly elected or not is now a litmus test for Americans to determine which side of the political aisle you're on. 
And if you're on that side of the political aisle, then it's hands off. This is what MSNBC is basically saying on all of their talk shows and all of the guests that come on. They're all basically saying, look, if you don't think that that election was fair and square, then you have a problem and we don't like you. Now, imagine working for the FBI and, uh, you know, you've just been in the business. You've served your country. You Well, listen to Marcus Allen's story about how things got progressively worse. It's, it's a little bit long, but it's a story. And it was told to Americans today, many of whom will not even hear about it. And this is Marcus Allen, former FBI and now current whistleblower. So just so you know a little bit about me, I served honorably in the United States Marine Corps from 2000 to 2005. I was deployed to Kuwait and served two tours in Iraq and contributed to Operation Iraqi Freedom. During my deployments, I was exposed to live enemy fire on numerous occasions, even though I served primarily in analytical and intelligence roles. I was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal and the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal. I eventually joined the FBI and was Employee of the Year in 2019 in the Charlotte Field Office. As the holder of a top-secret security clearance since 2001, I've been trusted with the nation's greatest secrets. So why am I here today? Despite my history of unblemished service to the United States, the FBI suspended my security clearance, accusing me of actually being disloyal to my country. This outrageous and insulting accusation is based on unsubstantiated accusations that I hold conspiratorial views regarding the events of January 6, 2021, and that I allegedly sympathize with criminal conduct. I do not. I was not in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, played no part in the events of January 6th, and I condemn all criminal activity that occurred. Instead, it appears that I was retaliated against because I forwarded information to my superiors and others that questioned the official narrative of the events of January 6th. As a result, I was accused of promoting conspiratorial views and unreliable information. Because I did this, the FBI questioned my allegiance to the United States. Since I was suspended, there's been a dearth of communication from the FBI, with interactions seemingly only being forced by actions from my counsel or members of Congress. For example, I was not even interviewed interviewed by anyone from the FBI until May of 2022. I was suspended in January of 2022. This interaction with the FBI happened on the heels of a public statement from a congressional member in early May of 2022. The member made statements indicating the FBI was conducting a purge of employees with conservative viewpoints. Within hours of the public statements, my counsel received a phone call from the FBI wanting to see if they could conduct an interview. I promptly complied and did an interview with investigators within a week. Throughout this ordeal, I and my counsel have responded quickly, whereas the FBI has only stonewalled. I have filed a federal civil rights lawsuit, which is pending, seeking to recover my livelihood and restore my good name. Recently, my counsel filed a whistleblower complaint with the Justice Department's Office of Inspector General. The complaint set forth retaliation through misuse of the security clearance process, as well as reprisal against me for making a protected disclosure. Interestingly enough, in the wake of of filing the complaint, I received correspondence from the FBI indicating that my clearance had now been formally revoked. This occurred after filing my complaint with the IG. The new and baseless claims made in the letter had never been brought up prior to the issuance of the security clearance revocation letter. I have never had the opportunity to defend myself. 
I only had one interview with the FBI, which occurred a year ago after apparent prompting from Congress. In that interview, the investigators, towards the end of the interview, uttered in response to my exasperation, don't sue us. Uh, and, it, you know, here's a guy clawing to get his life back simply because he uttered uh, something other than the narrative. Isn't that amazing what, what these people are doing to even their own? He's on the outside. They have to extricate him. They have to get him out. And we, and we know now from the Cohen report, which is very important to all of this, is that we have an FBI that has been corrupted from the top. And again, I'll remind you that Hag- Hageman said it very succinctly earlier today, and I think it is, it bears, it's worth repeating that we are now in a situation where our law enforcement has been weaponized and politicized against well-nigh half the country. As this hearing gets underway, I want to focus on the cultural changes that have occurred within the FBI over the last 20-plus years, fundamental changes that have led to the political capture of our flagship law enforcement agencies, and with the Democrats using these agencies as their own personal political hacks. What happened that allowed for politicization to permeate every facet of the FBI? Well, there are many things. But I think we must focus on the information that was provided by retired FBI Special Agent Thomas Baker, who testified before the Select Subcommittee earlier this year. Mr. Baker explained that in the aftermath of 9-11, and upon being embarrassed by being scolded by President Bush for not being able to stop it from happening, then FBI Director Robert Mueller made the decision to fundamentally change the FBI from a law enforcement body to an intelligence-driven one. Such a redirection of the very purpose of the FBI resulted in centralizing its power in Washington, D.C., while placing less emphasis on the field offices. 9-11 was a watershed moment for many reasons. It was a horrific terrorist attack on the shores of the United States of America. But our government's ultimate response is also tragic. And by by eventually finding a way to target not the terrorists, but American citizens, which is where the FBI and DOJ are. And now we know how we got to where we are today. Now it's hopeful, uh, a glimmer of hope, is that we have uh, un- uncovered it and American citizens are being exposed to the lies. So we'll see where Congress takes it. Will they have the guts to start holding these people accountable? So again, pound 250, put that in your phone, and then you'll be prompted to look for a keyword, and your keyword is CRN, talk. And then you will be whisked away to an app, or an app will whisk itself into your phone, and uh, and then you'll have the app to be able to listen to this program and all CRN talk programs 24 hours a day, spread across five, six channels, and it's all free. Isn't that great? And you'll hear some of the biggest talk names in the country, along with yours truly and many other great hosts at crntalk.com. So check it out. Uh, Again, just dial pound 250. I probably am getting this wrong. I might want to try it first. And then the keyword is CRN. And then that's all you got to do. Hey, you know, yesterday Elon Musk got a real whipping 
from Dave Farber over at CNBC. And I want to just talk to you a little bit about George Soros, just based on what little I know about the man. But what little I know is still based on uh, what I've researched about him. And he has not been a stranger. I've heard of George Soros, probably one of the first big conspiracy theories that people talked about in the 80s. And one thing I can tell you is that this is a bad actor. Bad in the sense that he inflicts his influence, his his global view on millions of others, and he makes other people suffer. And he takes it. Uh, he affected the e- economic collapse in Thailand back in the 70s, and it crippled a lot of people. It created a lot of poverty for people. And he will admit, as you will see in this interview that I'm about to play, that he doesn't care. He only cares about being an opportunist. And he proved it when he was young. He said he was 13 and he lived in Hungary. And someone took him under his wing. And he's Jewish. But whoever took him under his wing was apparently someone effective or powerful within the uh, the uh, Nazi community. And essentially said that George Soros was not not Jewish. He was German. And that saved his life. But then... For years and years and years, this same George Soros was going around fingering other people in the Jewish community and taking advantage of the fact that they were being shipped off to death camps. And this guy grew up and he became very powerful, but it was always under the guise of he was a Holocaust survivor. Well, yeah, the reason he survived is because he got lucky. and But that doesn't mean he didn't turn in other people. He didn't try to save other people. He used it as, as an opportunity to build wealth. And then once the war was over, he went to school, went to college, got his degree in finance. Very smart man. No one's taken away his intelligence. But he continues to this day to inflict harm, for example, in the United States. Take, for example, all the DAs and all these major cities. George Soros's foundations have sponsored or supported or even foot the bill for these people's election careers. We just recently had someone in Jacksonville, I believe, or no, Pittsburgh, who was, uh, received 70000 in campaign contributions. Might actually have been much higher than that. I don't have to check. And the guy won. Now we have yet another Soros-friendly, globalist Democrat running a major city, Pittsburgh. And you know that one of the things he's going to do is eliminate low-level criminal prosecutions. And he'll probably come up with, you know, no bail release where you'll have people who are being arrested for crimes. They're charged and then they're set back out on the street again. And this has a horrendous effect in New York, a tremendous effect. That's why we're seeing the up, uptick in violence in these cities all across America. Do you think George Soros cares about any of that? No, he cares about some fabricated idea of social justice, criminal justice. Maybe that's his way of, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what his end game is. Maybe somebody can tell me that. But all I ever hear is that he is a disruptor, just like Bill Gates. Bill Gates has his own reasons for wanting to inflict his worldview on the rest of humanity. And he has so much damn money that he can influence anybody. If he funds your project and your project is in alignment with what Bill Gates, for example, renewable green energy, if you're in that game with him, then he's going to support you. How can you possibly say no to that? 
The guy will pay for you to support yourself as long as you do what he wants you to do. And he's got his tendrils everywhere, just as George Soros does. And I think it's morally wrong to, uh, as an individual who with influence, with grave influence, to use that influence, that financial in incentive, to have people carry your vision of the world to the rest of us. And maybe he thinks he's saving the planet, but maybe he's wrong. He's not a global scientist. He's a smart guy. But if you surround yourself with people that are, agree with you, you're going to give them your money and say, okay, so now go save the planet. Now all these rules are being implemented, policies that are, that are just making it harder and harder for you and I to make a living. Creating poverty. These people are creating poverty. That's their direct influence. And they're creating criminality in the name of social injustice. Isn't that strange? So listen to this interview. It's about three minutes long, and it's George Soros. I actually edited out a lot of the spaces. But it's, uh, I think it's uh, Croft from uh, CBS 60 Minutes. This is uh, George Soros. This is the real George Soros. And I believe it's from 1979. Are you that powerful? <laughs> no, I think there's a great misunderstanding. I am basically there to, uh, to make money. I cannot and do not look at the social consequences of, of what I do. As a, as a competitor, I've got to compete to win. As a human being, I, can, I, I am concerned about the society in which I live. Which George Soros am I talking to now? The amoral George Soros or the, the moral George Soros? Uh, it's one person. It's one person who at one time engages in amoral activities and at the rest of the time tries to be moral. You're a Hungarian Jew who escaped the Holocaust mm -hmm. by posing as a, a Christian. Right. And you watched lots of people get shipped off to the death camps. Right. I was 14 years old. And I would say that that's when my character was made. In what way? That one should think ahead, one should understand and, and anticipate events. Uh, and uh, one, one is threatened. It was a tremendous threat of evil. I mean, it was a, a very personal experience of evil. My understanding is, is that you went out with this protector of yours who swore that you were uh, his adopted godson. Yes, yes. Went out, in fact, and helped in the confiscation of property from the Jews. That's right. I mean, that's, that sounds uh, like an experience that would send lots of people to the psychiatric couch for many, many years. Was it difficult? Uh, not, not, not at all. Not at all. It, uh, maybe as a child, you don't you don't see the connection, uh, uh, but it was it created no no problem at all. No feeling of guilt. No. For example, that uh, I'm Jewish, uh, and here I am watching these people go. I could just as easily be there. I should be there. None of that. Well, uh, of course, I, uh, I could be on the other side, or I could be the one from whom it, the thing is being taken away. Uh, um, but there was no sense that I shouldn't be there, because uh, that was... Uh, uh, well, actually, funny way, it's just like in markets, that if I weren't there, 
of course I wasn't doing it, but somebody else would, 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 would be taking it away anyhow. And it was the, whether I was there or not, I was only a spectator, the property was being taken away. So the, I had no role in taking away that property. So I had no sense of guilt. Mm. I mean, even in the worst circumstances, if you did nothing, you'd have to feel guilty about something, about seeing people in your community being hauled away knowing for sure you would never see them again and feeling guilty that why them and not me. It's like people that survive car crashes or automo or airplane crashes, they have enormous guilt. Uh, but somehow this man was able to, you know, there's an old saying, only a moral man can find immorality repugnant. And I think he saw it as, as he stated, this is George Soros from a 60 Minutes interview over two decades ago saying that he learned at 14 that you have to know what's going to come ahead and you have to have to predict it and you have to survive. That's essentially what he's saying is you got to survive, but it still doesn't justify his behavior in, in influence peddling large countries, economic systems, infusing uh, political candidates with cash who want to carry your vision forward, which is what he's doing. So he is having an effect how do you think a lot of these people are getting to to the border? Who's funding them? You ever notice how good, clean clothes they look like they're wearing? There, there must be groups scattered everywhere that go about doing George Soros bidding. Why? Because they get paid off and they are corrupted. And, you know, money corrupts. Money, money will motivate anybody to do anything. Especially in third world countries where opportunities are slim. And he must know this. So perhaps maybe Mr. Soros is banking on the fact that the more he uh, underscores America progress and prosperity, the more he stands to benefit financially. And he's already admitted that he doesn't care. So I just wanted you to hear a little bit of George Soros because you hear his name being bantered about and the media mostly portrays him as this nice, innocent victim. Uh, and in fact, they're probably being subsidized on some level as well. That's how corruption works. But to, to say that Elon Musk is somehow hateful because he thinks Soros is evil. Well, uh, uh, you know, if I'm guilty, I'm guilty of agreeing with Elon Musk. I trust him more than that guy. Until next time, thanks for stopping by. This is Speaking Out America. Join us online and right here, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. on CRNTalk.com.